Welcome to the Everyday Citizens Tactical Podcast, Episode 6, The What, Why, and When of Comms. As always, my name is Jeremy and I will be your host. Our guest today is the main operator of the Comms and Logistics Instagram page, who is currently studying electrical engineering with a speciality in radio frequency. He is asked to maintain a level of privacy, so we will respect that to the best of our ability throughout this episode. So, sit back and put your listening ears on as we dive into the world of communications. Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder yeah. Call me what you wanna but you can't call me no coward no. Strength in numbers, we the people still the ones with power Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder All right, CNL, thanks for coming on, man. I, I think this is going to be a really good episode. Absolutely. Good to be with you today. So like we said, guys, we're going to be talking you know, as much about comms today as we can and hopefully give everybody both the beginner level and the more advanced level a little bit of insight and a little bit more knowledge. So if you want to go ahead and kind of introduce yourself and let everybody know you know, who we're talking to today. Yeah, so uh, I run the uh, Instagram page comms and logistics. Uh, I am... When it comes to radios, I am not as experienced. I'll be flat out honest. I'm not as experienced as everyone may seem to think I am. Uh, I got into comms uh, around 2020 when the world started to fall uh, into the uh, crapper. Um, and what I what I'm doing is I am taking my knowledge, how I learned it, and putting it into words that anybody can understand uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing but I'm super interested in communications and the off-grid aspect and the security aspect about communications and how it, it is involved in logistics and uh, overall civil conflict uh, that's kind of my purpose behind all of uh, what I'm doing here so <laughs> yeah so, so even I do not know a lot about you. What, what is your background? Are you a civilian? Were you prior military? No, so, you don't have to give away too much, but just what's a general background for you? Yeah, so I am 100% pure civilian. I am going to college. Uh, I have, I'm studying electrical engineering, uh, specifically focused on RF, uh, radio frequencies, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so that's kind of my background for radios and stuff like that. I'm coming at it from the technical the technical perspective. Awesome. Yeah, I know, I mean, it just in general, I mean, you probably see it even more with your page being, you know, dedicated towards comms is that mm -hmm. the kind of tactical community on the civilian side um, is really just starting to come around to more advanced um, comm plans and understanding how and what, why things work. You know, it, that is probably one of the biggest things we, we probably lack in right now. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think, um, you know, the, the one thing that's sort of holding it back is the technology. Mm. Um, we don't have really advanced military radios that do like frequency hopping, uh, anti-jam uh, resistance and, and very um, strong encryption uh, implementations and stuff like that. We don't really have that. Another thing is knowledge because the radio world it's kind of plagued by several things uh you have um 
you have I, I don't want to call them elitists, but mm-hmm. you have some of the ham radio guys, the ham radio guys that are super focused on what they're doing and they don't really want to deviate from uh, kind of their tradition and I respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one thing that's holding it back in terms of the knowledge side. And the other side is just there's not very many people experimenting with secure radios and secure radio equipment and standards and stuff like that um, on the civilian side of things. Of course, we see it in, in public safety. We see it in the military, but not necessarily out in the civilian sector. So that's why I was sort of driven towards that. And that's kind of where my goal is set in terms of education. Um, so, yeah, I think that's two things two the two sides of the coin that's sort of uh what's going on in the communications world in terms of civilians so <laughs> there's also a i feel like there's also a really big kind of l- gap in the knowledge that's available to civilians because even me because i was a radio operator in the marine corps before i did embassy security mm-hmm. but that was pretty much all analog green gear so when i came to the civilian side all of this comp stuff was completely new, especially since digital was just starting to get big. Oh, yeah. I think in terms of the civilian stuff, we're really trying to just scrape the barrel in terms of just getting as advanced hardware as we possibly can without breaking too many legal boundaries. Because um, we know that the stuff that the military is employing now, it's it's pretty restricted. Um not only just the hardware, uh, but the software is extremely difficult to come by. And I've yet to have access to any of this stuff. Uh, and I've been trying. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just we're trying to make and, do with uh, – go ahead. And, and even for like, you know, organized, you know, civilian groups or um, volunteer groups, whatever it may be. It doesn't even have to mm-hmm. be in, you know, the civilian tactical communities. You know, depending on the level of your comms plan that you're trying to implement, it requires a lot of, we'll call it infrastructure in a sense, a lot of support. Yes. Um, which is something we, you know, we do not have at this time or, or don't even really have the ability to implement at this time. Yeah. And a lot of it's also extremely expensive, uh, especially repeaters. Certain types of repeaters are pretty expensive. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. Like, infrastructure is a huge deal. And, just getting access to it and knowing how to set it up properly is um, pretty uncommon to know, uh, so, so to say. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of dive into that as we go, but let's kind of um, start towards you know the beginning for folks that are probably rather new to comms, which will probably be mm-hmm. the majority of people listening to this. So um, you know the frequency bands. You know what is HF, VHF, and UHF? You know what is it? What is a good general breakdown for the um, the, the beginner here? So let's, I'm going to start off by explaining what uh, RF or radio frequency is. So radio frequency is based on electromagnetism. Uh, I know this is kind of some scary terms here, but uh, electromagnetism is basically the way how all energy propagates through space. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that could be light, that could be radio, that could be infrared, um, x-rays, um, anything, anything that's on the electromagnetic spectrum, it is electromagnetic radiation in some way, some form. Now, HF, VHF, and UHF are all frequency bands on that spectrum. Okay, They're underneath the radio class of uh, electromagnetic energy. But 
they are sort of separated because the way that we can use them. Um, HF, VHF, and UHF all propagate the Earth in different ways, and they all have their advantages and weaknesses. Okay, so we're, we're just dealing with energy, and energy is very weird, and it and it interacts with things in ways you would not expect, uh, especially HF, uh, high frequency. So high frequency sort of sounds like it's high frequency, and it's actually not. It's actually quite a bit lower than VHF, which stands for very high frequency, and UHF, which is ultra high frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because HF was sort of pioneered in the time where oscillators and the technology wasn't quite there to get the higher frequencies that that we use today. Mm-hmm. But HF has some really cool properties because it can basically reflect um, or, or refract off of the atmosphere and bounce off the Earth's surface and, and really cool stuff. And that gives it pretty awesome range. Uh, it can basically talk all, all over the world if you have it set up correctly or maybe just in a 400, 600-mile radius depending on the configuration. I remember when I was in um, on the West Coast when I, when I first joined the Marine Corps and I had got to the fleet, we were mm-hmm. setting up um, HF comms to talk from you know 29 Palms, California to Okinawa, mm-hmm. um, just setting up these you know, giant antennas with you know these catch-alls. And it, it, it blew my mind that we were able to to do that. So when I had learned how you know it, it, HF interacts with the atmosphere and all of that, it was it was very interesting to me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is it is kind of wild to think that this energy can somehow be reflected back towards the Earth because of just how it propagates Earth. That, that is just extremely strange to me, and and I something I thought was really unique whenever I was getting into first getting into communications and stuff like that. Um, so I guess one thing I should talk about HF and kind of how it correlates to the other RF bands is that usually the lower the frequency, the better it propagates Earth. Now, that comes with some drawbacks. The lower the frequency, the more typically the more interference there is. Um, so like let's say you have the 60 hertz hum for... Uh, you know, the AC power grid in the United States. 60 hertz is pretty low frequency, right? And that happens to fall around the, uh, I think it's actually below 30 hertz, but it, it sort of, is you, you can sort of get the idea that anything that's low frequency that's mm-hmm. that has to deal with electricity is going to interfere with that. In addition to that interference, you have solar events, you have... Um, Man-made object, uh, man-made things interfering with HF again. Uh, you have lightning that sort of gets in the way of some of the really lower frequency stuff, um, and that's one thing that comes with HF. Another thing is the, the antenna size. The lower the frequency, the bigger the antenna has to be. Absolutely. That's just that's just a given fact. There's not really a good way to get around that. Um, that applies to all radio. Uh, so the higher the frequency, the the smaller the antenna can be for generally speaking the same performance it's funny we always used to make jokes about how you know being a radio operator in the military is the only job you can just blame the weather on and that <laughs> things aren't going correctly which is 100 percent true yeah like any little any little thing can mess up your communications plan um especially if you're only relying on one 
uh, radio band for propagation. Like, if you don't have flexibility, then one little thing can really hurt you. So, as another note for HF for those that are listening, you know, you're you're in a sense your land nav and mapping abilities comes into play greatly when you start talking about long distance HF implementation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like because, if, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. If if you're trying to make contact with somebody, if you're trying to set up this radio system, some of these radio systems are directional and and knowing where your target is can help you better manage your frequency band of operation. So HF, we call it you know an RF band, but it's actually a set of RF bands, right? You have some of the lower frequency stuff. I think some of the amateur radio stuff goes down to 160 meters of wavelength. I'll get into wavelength in just a second, but it's it's sort of it it breaks down the frequency groups inside the HF band um, based on their propagation. So uh, it's it's adding another level of complexity uh, to to how we define how radio propagates Earth, but uh, so the higher frequency stuff is not going to curve around uh, the Earth as much as the lower uh, frequency stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> and then for VHF, uh, UHF, what are some of you know the unique properties with that, and some of some of the main implementations for those? Yeah, for sure. So with VHF, uh, VHF split into two categories. I'd say uh, VHF low band and just regular VHF. Uh, low band is between 30 and uh, I would say 100 megahertz, give or take, maybe a little lower than that. Um, and it really likes to curve around hills, trees, um, and stuff like that. It, it can it can work with some pretty challenging terrain. Okay. Now there's issues with that. You have um, some lower frequency emitters that are going to cause interference with that it's more prone to interference the power required to kind of make good contacts is going to be higher than let's say if you were in line of sight with somebody but that's where low band vhf kind of comes in is it 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 really helps with um non-line of sight or slightly beyond line of sight comms um i think that's where it fits in quite well okay so we're talking like 20, 40, 50 miles, maybe even 100 miles, depending on the terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, depends on the power of the transmitter, of course, but yeah, give or take, that's what you're going to be seeing with low band. In terms of VHF, VHF is where we start to get towards the more line-of-sight communications. Mm-hmm. Um, VHF is is good for hilly terrain. Um, VHF kind of bends a little more than the higher-frequency stuff, Um Compared to UHF, uh, that's what I'm saying. Um, it is, generally speaking, easier to find gear in VHF and and uh, more, more, yeah. Compared to, it's easier to find gear in VHF than than HF and even low band VHF. Uh, so, I know we're kind of throwing around a lot of terms, but uh, it's that's sort of the order of how that stacks up uh, yeah so and then uh, UHF our last one yeah so UHF is getting more towards the line of sight communications it's sort of the 
happy medium between the lower frequency VHF stuff and the upper, uh, the higher frequency 700, 800 megahertz and beyond communication. So v, uh, UHF is is good for. Uh, it's not great at, at anything. I'd say it's not. It's really not great, but it can permeate through buildings, permeate through concrete a little better than VHF, the lower frequency stuff. Uh, in terms of how, like, if you're close by to somebody, the the high, some of the higher frequency stuff can kind of bend around and and reflect off stuff better than some of the lower frequency stuff. Um, that sort of does not really extend further than uh, I'd say like a mile or so inside a city. Uh, that's where some of the higher frequency stuff kind of comes in, but. Generally speaking, UHF is the happy medium between the two RF band, uh, the two RF bands next to it, so uh, VHF and the higher stuff. But you also have access to a lot, a lot more radio hardware. Mm -hmm. um, there are more repeaters w through amateur radio operators that are hosted in uh, UHF. You have your FRS radios that are talking in UHF, uh, and your MERS. Numbers, uh, GMRS radios that are in that band. So uh, you have a lots of operability capability within uh, UHF. And with UHF, that's that's correct me if I'm wrong. That is the field where most um, commercial radio frequencies is used. Correct. Yeah. So anything, um, anything from 300 megahertz to 3,000 megahertz or three gigahertz is going to be the technical classification for UHF. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what I'm talking about is specifically more near the 300 to 500 megahertz area. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're going to see a lot of commercial activity in, in that range. Um, you can see stuff that's higher than that, though typically most voice communications are going to be right around there, right around that range. I'm fairly certain even on um, the first responder side that I'm pretty sure all of you know the fire and police in my area are also on UHF specifically, like on the P25 side right now. Yeah, so that's that's based based on site um, that's site research. So whenever the guys installed all that radio hardware, they did a site survey to figure out which band propagated the best, and they figured out sort of UHF is the better alternative uh, compared to other RF bands. Um, so that's kind of how they go about it. And now it's just going to depend on where you live, you know, your hills, um, your how, how, many tree, how many trees you have, how many buildings you have, are you planning on working the city. Um, it's also about radio equipment as well. Um, there are radios that do all three bands. They do VHF. UHF and the higher frequency stuff, 700, 800 megahertz, but that's just going to be up to your department and their budget. So it just sort of depends on the situation there. And like we talked about earlier, you know, infrastructure, specifically the repeater side, is really heavy with like public safety and whatnot. They oh, have, yeah. They have a really <laughs> big support system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, and that's just so I'm, I guess, let me go over. Uh, you know what a repeater does and and um, kind of the features it brings uh, so a repeater is literally just repeating um, it is listening on one frequency and it's transmitting while you're speaking on a different frequency on 
on a different frequency that is uh, it is amplifying your signal. Um, so the repeater is increasing your power. It is um, usually located on a higher site or on a like on a tower or something like that. So you can uh, it can have more line of sight over the area. Mm. Um, and sometimes these repeaters can be linked together to create a more reliable repeater network. So it, you can expand coverage and stuff like that. Um, so that's basically how that's um, how repeaters work. <laughs> they they receive on one frequency and they transmit what you're saying at the same time with higher power and usually at a better location. So for those that are listening that may you know not have a general um, knowledge of repeaters or um, anything like that does your what does your radio that is acting as your repeater have to have greater capabilities than the ones you're already transmitting on or can they be the same you know you know what what kind of entails you know setting up those repeaters for them to work effectively so you have dedicated you have dedicated um, repeaters so those are the ones that are usually commercial um, those are commercial products you have the homemade repeaters, and then you have sort of the the mesh network type stuff. Okay, so that's kind of the spectrum of of repeating. The commercial repeaters are going to be the dedicated ones that are usually used in more serious applications. The homemade stuff is sort of like uh, tying two baofengs together, and it sort of makes a cheap little repeater. So that's going to be like you said, sort of the same capability as the radio you're transmitting on, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it the repeater doesn't necessarily have to be the same. It doesn't have to be better. It doesn't have to be worse. It doesn't have to be worse. It it can be the same. It's just, is, is it repeating? Yes or no. Uh, but uh, back to the last option, the mesh network stuff is basically saying, oh, everybody's a repeater. Um, and it's just bouncing around the message until it gets to the target um and i'm i know there's more intelligent logic behind that but that's sort of how the mesh network stuff works but yeah those are the three types of repeaters i think of when we talk about the whole scope of repeaters is the commercial stuff the more diy stuff and the the mesh uh networking radios and you said that you know repeaters they receive on one frequency and then they transmit at or a greater power on a different frequency, correct? That's correct, and that's most of the time. Um, there are some um, repeaters that operate. So repeaters usually operate in two modes. They operate either in simplex, mm-hmm. so they listen and they transmit on the same frequency. Now there has to be a delay between when it receives and when it transmits because it has to hear the whole message before it can send it, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have um, duplexed or or yeah, duplex repeaters which basically receive and transmit at the same time. And there has to have some sort of there, there has to be some sort of logic in order to control that um, and and some protections to make sure that the incoming signal doesn't cause interference. And or the the transmitting signal doesn't cause interference with the receiver and and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So that's why the commercial stuff is really good for duplex real time uh, voice and data repeating because they sort of handle that a little better than some of the DIY stuff. <laughs> um, so um, with with that portion onto the receivers, if 
if you have a couple teams or you know whatever you're you're trying to communicate with fan members and you have a repeater system set up, mm-hmm. if I'm if we are all set to transmit on let's just say 155.5 or we're utilizing VHF, we're yep. all set to transmit on 155.5, but that repeater is set to transmit at 160.5, receive at 155.5. How does um how how does the radios that weren't transmitting initially eventually receive that if they're on a different frequency than the repeaters that are pushing it back out? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So generally speaking, when radios are set up for duplex repeater traffic, so that's we're talking about two different frequencies. You have an input frequency and you have an output frequency, usually. Mm. The input frequency is the the frequency that the repeater is listening on. Mm-hmm. So that's the input to the repeater. And then the output frequency is the transmitting frequency of the repeater, so what you hear. Um, when the repeater is in standby mode, it's listening on the input frequency always. Mm-hmm. And when the radio is on standby as well, it's tuned to the transmitting frequency or it's tuned to the input frequency of the repeater. Mm. So when the radio is trying to contact the repeater, it's talking on the the same frequency of the input, right? Gotcha. So they're the, they're the opposite for the, okay. Yeah, but when, when the radio is just standing by, it's listening to the output of the repeater. Gotcha. So it, they flip. The, the radio, the transmitting radio flips frequency whenever, uh, depending on what's going on. So if you're transmitting on a radio, it's it's talking on the input frequency of the repeater, and when the radio is just on standby, it's listening to the output of the repeater. Gotcha. So it is with you know your Kenwoods and your Motorolas and your Hyteros and all this kind of stuff. Is this and you know is this a, a basic or a standard um, technology that most radios come with? Are are is that able to, are you able to set that up from yes. the get go? Okay. Yeah. So ideally, every single radio has the capability of being programmed with a uh, a receive frequency and a transmit frequency. Gotcha. Uh, that's generally how you're going to see the programming done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just so you could set up those uh, frequency offsets for the input and the output frequency of repeaters and so on. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to use those two frequencies for repeaters only. There's some creative aspects to that as well. but ideally and usually they're used for repeaters gotcha with um what is a general ballpark price um someone could be looking at to get into the repeater game for the vhf uhf bands so it generally comes down to which rf or which modes are uh which modes you're going to be using for radio so what i mean by mode is i mean you know is it digital is it going to be analog? Um, can it do both? Mm-hmm. Um, which RF band is it in? That's a very good uh, way to sort of price these repeaters is which band they operate in. Um, and some of their networking capabilities and, and quality. I think those are the main aspects that you're going to be, that are going to dictate the price. Okay. So let's say the run-of-the-mill um VHF analog repeater that can put out 50 watts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to, you know, generally speaking, going to be around anywhere from. You can find these used. You can buy them new. 
um, I'd say anywhere from 150 bucks all the way up to two grand. Uh, generally speaking, that's going to be what you see. Now, there's a ball, there's a there's a good sweet spot there. I'd say you know repeaters are expensive. I'm just going to say that right now. So, but like a $500 repeater, if you can find a used Motorola repeater or or something like that, then you're going to be pretty pretty fine. Or a Kenwood repeater you're going to be pretty fine for analog operations. Mm. Now, when you start to get into digital, especially DMR or P25, I guess we should probably cover the digital standards soon yeah, here. That was, but. Yeah, that was going <laughs> to be our next talking point. We kind of bounced around, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But um, usually whenever you start getting into the more digital stuff, you start adding a zero to the price. Um, mm. Now, DMR is sort of the exception of that. You can find some cheaper um, DMR repeaters, especially from Motorola. Some of the older ones are cheaper. Um, but the public safety P25 stuff is, generally speaking, the most expensive repeater uh, in terms of um, the infrastructure side. It's it's harder to get your hands on that type of stuff, so that's why they're, it's more expensive. Gotcha. So I guess then that leads us in. We should probably go ahead and talk about it. And I, and I apologize to everybody that may be a little overwhelmed at the moment. I mean, <laughs> comms is a very detailed and kind of complicated processes in a sense, especially if you have no background or just base understanding. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so sure. we can kind of go ahead and break down, you know, what, what is, what is analog and what is digital and you know, what, what is your preference of the two? Okay. So the way I break it down is you, we talked about that RF energy, right? Um, but the mode of operation of, of between analog or digital or digital standards is how the data, how is your voice, how is the information you're transmitting over the radio encoded? Mm-hmm. So radios have to use encoding so that, that so that they know what they're uh, so that they it's how they communicate. Encoding is literally how like right now I'm I'm talking English and English could be the encoding that we're using right now. So it's for analog radios, it's going to be based on. Uh, amplitude modulation or frequency modulation usually frequency modulation for for 99% of the cases um, and what that is is basically the radio is changing the frequency of of the output uh, it's very verif- it's varying the frequency as uh, that it's using the frequency to encode the data mm. um, that's the way I think of it so it's it's shifting the frequency around based on what is trying to send over the radio, and it could do this. Um, it, it it usually takes up uh, 12 kilohertz of bandwidth, which is basically saying that it could send uh, data over this channel, uh, this amount of data over this channel. So um, it's kind of getting in the weeds a little bit, but. Uh, in terms of amplitude modulation, it's basically changing. It's varying the power output of the transmitter to encode the data, and that's generally where you come into AM radio stations. Uh, the further you go away, the quieter they get. So that's kind of the issue with AM. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's why people go to FM usually because it requires less power and it's just overall more robust than AM. Um, now in terms of the digital stuff. Uh, you're starting to talk about more advanced encoding. So we're talking about like C4FM. Um, what's the one for uh, DMR? I think it's um, – ah, I just had it on the top of my head. 
Um, anyways, there's a there's an encoding method. There's an algorithm for DMR. I'm gonna look this up right now because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. I, I get on a roll and then I forget the main topic point that I was working my way towards. Yeah, so it's they're using. Um, oh, why can I not think about it? Oh my gosh, I'm having a massive brain fart. Four uh, FSK. Oh, mm. why could I not get? <laughs> okay, you might have to cut that out. But four <laughs> <laughs> FSK. Um, it's it's basically just the encoding. Uh, that's what it comes down to. And then the the digital standard comes on top of that. So the standard is generally defining, um, you know, the types of messages that are being sent across RF. Uh, so like. Hello, I'm this. Uh, I'm, this radio is is this. I'm trying to talk to this person, or and stuff like that. And uh, you know, your like your radio ID, so, you're, so sort of your identifier. Uh, that's kind of how uh, st- stuff like that. That's that's what's defined by the digital standard is how the radios interact with each other. So for those that that may not know, um, are you able to speak? to somebody on analog if you're transmitting on HF if you guys are on the same frequency. So are you just generally talking about HF or, or just? It, it, uh, any, any of the three, BHF, okay. HF, or UHF. If it's, if it's unencrypted, can analog talk to digital and vice versa? So directly, so if, if somebody is listening with an analog radio and you're talking digital, mm-hmm. generally the answer is no. Um, however, most digital radios, uh, I'm going to say 99% of digital radios will be able to do analog operation. Okay. So, um, th- these are commercially av- available radios. That's what I'm, uh, kind of gearing towards now military stuff. Of course, they're going to be able to do analog, but, uh, 99% of all digital radios will be able to do analog operation. I think that's a, it's a question I get a lot. Like you know, can my Baofeng talk to this radio? And absolutely, yes, absolutely. Uh, that is built into that radio, mm-hmm. um, and this applies to HF, VHF, and UHF radios. So, is that just yeah. a setting you change to switch over to analog operations, or how does that work, or does it just work from the get go? Yeah. So on on P twenty five radios, it's actually mandated that they can do both at the same time. Uh, so it 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 can listen on analog, and it can transmit on digital, and it can flip on some radios. Um, now, usually it's just a setting you flip in the programming software or maybe on the radio programming, uh, like on the front of the radio, you can you can program to say, hey, this is an analog channel or this is a digital channel or something like that. Um, so yeah, you, you can you can flip back and forth pretty easily with a toggle. Okay, awesome. That's, that's actually really cool because I know with, you know, a lot of, you know, groups that it formed or civilian bases, volunteer groups, it... I hate saying I hate saying groups because not everybody listening is you know a, you know a group, mm-hmm. um, but you know there are people that you know will come up with new comms plans and you know kind of like how we were talking about you know switching over towards you know digital um, and trying to develop more infrastructure and a more sophisticated plan. But some people just are never going to be able to afford or never be able to justify switching to digital, and they may just always continue to rock their bowfangs, unfortunately. Um, so you know having that ability to potentially still communicate with them if needed is important. Oh yeah, and I, I agree. Um, 
digital radios are usually more expensive. Now, there are some exceptions. Um, there are some cheaper P25, some cheaper DMR radios. Mm. Uh, and generally speaking, for che- overall budget, if you're going to pick a digital standard, P25 is probably the way to go. Uh, there are some pretty cheap P25 radios out there that do all the encryption and, and really cool stuff mm-hmm. um, on eBay, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's like it, being able to interoperate is a huge deal. And there was actually quite a vis- bit of discussion on the the Instagram communications, um, the yeah the the Instagram communications kind of community mm-hmm. about interoperability and. Uh, people were getting on to me because I never talked about other types of radios you should own besides, you know, your kit radio and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I absolutely agree with them. I need to be talking more about radios that that have wider range or receive ranges and, and wider transmit uh, frequency ranges um, so they could talk to more people and do more things with, mm-hmm. with analog and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that's, that's one thing. Having having interoperability in in a in a singular radio is a great thing. But with some of these more advanced digital radios, you don't really have all the flexibility you could want. Um, now, if you if you want to spend a lot of money, absolutely, you could have that. But um, generally speaking, digital radios are single band RF band operating radios only. So the radios come in. VHF models, UHF models, and the higher frequency 700-800 megahertz radio models. Mm-hmm. And they will only do that RF band. Now, there are some radio models that some of these companies sell that do all, or two of them, or all three of those um, bands, but those are very it's expensive. Pricey. Yes. It's pricey really fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Which, I guess, kind of leads us in, now that we have a little bit of an understanding, or at least, hopefully, we have a little bit of an understanding of how radio frequencies work and, you know, digital versus analog and all that, so about things why i guess why the transition in the in the talk of the community with the comms community and you know the tactical community away from bow and and why should people start to do that if they're not already on that on board with that yeah so you know the bow is a 30 dollar radio usually it's a 30 dollar radio that anyone can buy okay and for those two reasons it's a very, very compelling radio, and I respect that a lot, right? The Baofeng is quite a capable radio for what it's priced at. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some downside. There are some downsides to that. The Baofeng is, of course, made in China. It's a thirty-dollar radio, and you're asking quite a lot from a thirty-dollar radio. Mm-hmm. Um, so, given those things, now. Just because it's made in China doesn't mean it's terrible quality. It's just QC can sometimes be an issue. Yeah. Um, the price for what you're asking for it to do is a lot. Um, having, you know, expecting a lot of quality and a lot of reliability out of this radio is not something you should be doing. Um, the reason why I say that is because, you know, there's there is. There's no name to be, um, you know. There's there's no liability, uh, and usually when you, you're talking about kit and when you're talking about gear in general, mm. the higher quality stuff 
tends to just last longer. Uh, that is just that is just a given. And remember, this radio is one of your most important tools if used correctly. So why, uh, you know, like if you're if you're going cheap on a radio, you're kind of putting that to detriment. Like your radio is basically your tool to talk to your buddies without yelling or without necessarily being able to see them or or you know something that's going to be very very critical with squad oriented operations and stuff like that mm-hmm. it's You're, a very it's a very good i would say starting tool or, or a, like a handout prep is like we kind of like to talk about it you know if you and your buddies are it's probably a controversial opinion but if you and your buddies are just starting to kind of train together you guys are just diving into comms buying a $30 Baofeng and, you know, practicing radio etiquette and learning how the frequency bands work and all that probably isn't a horrible idea. Oh, because I agree. <laughs> because, you, because you probably don't have the knowledge um, or experience to begin with to be diving into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of comms equipment. Yeah, um, which, for sure. Which which seems to be somewhat recently some pages um, or, or figures, and, I, and none come to mind off the top of my head. I've just seen it on occasion here and there. Some pages... I think put Baofengs down too much or kind of shame the Baofeng users. Um, mm-hmm. Which So, yeah, I think there's there's reasons um, behind why that is. Uh, I'm definitely not opposed to people learning on a Baofeng. I think that is a fantastic tool to, to start to learn radio. Um, now, is, is it just sort of a buy once and sort of forget thing? I don't think so. Uh, there is a lot more capability to be had, and especially when you start throwing in the topics of electronic warfare, and and you know your kit durability and your the the performance of these radios, you really want to start looking towards better options when it comes to radio hardware. Uh, the Baofeng is not something you should be settling on if you're going to be relying on this. Now, if you're just going to be doing, if you're just going to be using it for leisure or for ham radio activities then yeah it's fine it's but that's generally speaking not what we're talking about when we talk about mm-hmm. tactical field use radios it's just that's generally speaking not you know the Baofeng will work but how well will it work how long will it work for um and and what counters does it have to electronic warfare and that those are the really big ticket items when it comes to why you should consider not using the Baofeng is is if you are worried about those three things, then do not use a Baofeng. That's I will say that. Yeah, since the beginning of this Russia-Ukraine conflict, you know a lot of people have seen um, volunteers and you know the smaller, less equipped you know units um, mm-hmm. in the conflict utilizing Baofengs. They're like, oh, see if they can do it, we can do it. But I don't think I don't think a that's a reason to settle because if they had better comms equipment, I'm sure they would use it. Um, but it's also extremely dangerous to fight a conventional force with mm-hmm. something as simple and unreliable and unsecure as a Baofeng. Yes, and to get on to that point, something that was very interest something very interesting was happening with that conflict because. You had the Russians using Baofengs, and you had some of the Ukrainians using Baofengs, right? They're both insecure analog radios that operate on the same frequency ranges. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, 
they were able to hear each other in some circumstances because they just didn't program them properly. Um, so they came from the factory, the same factory in China, mm-hmm. and they arrived in this conflict on both sides of the conflict using the default frequencies that were put into that radio. So they were basically hearing each other while they were miles apart. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine if you're fighting a war with somebody, you don't want to be able to do that. Well, of course, you want to listen to them, of course, but they can also listen to you, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a huge deal in terms of the security aspect. Um, so that kind of is a pretty good segue into encryption, mm-hmm. digital standards, um, how that sort of plays with electronic warfare. So I guess I should probably explain electronic warfare a little bit. Okay. So radios and radio technology is such a vast, you know, it, it is, it's like an ocean. Uh, there is so much to do. There's so much to learn. And if you want to do this one specific thing, you could spend weeks, months just figuring out stuff mm-hmm. to, to make it work. It is so excruciatingly deep in terms of how far you can go with the knowledge. And electronic warfare is literally that, but I'd probably say like twice as bad. <laughs> it is so, there is so little known about it. It's electronic warfare is basically just electronic warfare fighting fighting your adversary with electronics um it's not necessarily attacking it's not necessarily defending um it's it's not just preventing either it's all three of those combined into one sort of domain i would i'd say so it's the attack it's the defense and it's the the protection and the research and you know the technology to prevent electro uh, uh, electric electronic warfare. It's, mm. it's it, it encompasses those three things, and as you can imagine, people spend their entire livelihoods sticking in either defense, attack, or uh, protection. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is a huge field, but it's basically what all of the major gov- major militaries and governments around mm-hmm. the world are are focusing on quite a bit in terms of their defense spending Mm -hmm. because they see that electronics are a great tool they're also a really really good way to attack your enemy Mm -hmm. um and that is a pretty big you know that is that is something that the majority of the civilian population is not yet equipped to handle at all uh there is like for us we have we have firearms and we have you know, weapon systems and, and kinetic weapon systems, but we don't have a way to project power in terms of uh, that sort of electronic warfare aspect. That is, that is something that most people don't even know about, and that's something that most people don't even like think of when it comes to stuff. Um, but it's a major important factor when it comes to communications because I will say this, any next conflict that happens will rely very heavily on electronic warfare for at least the very first weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to say, before you said, you know, civilians are unaware or unready for that. I mean, 
everything in our current daily lives, at least here in America, um, everything revolves around electronics and or communications in a sense. Your, your Wi-Fi and our cell phone systems and the towers that come with it and, you know, that whole electric, you know, kind of grid that ties into it. Mm -hmm. um, losing that would be, I mean, I, we, we as a country, I, I don't think are even mentally strong enough at this point anymore to not only just understand, but grasp losing that type of uh, commodity for any period of time. Yeah, and I and I would strongly agree. This it is losing power is something most people don't think about anymore. Most people aren't worried about that anymore. Um, even though we you know we sort of had that scare in in, uh, in February of 2021, where you know oh you know it's it's really snowy outside, it's really cold, and all of our power lines basically froze, or, or our power generation systems were basically nulled um during this thing that, i guess that's kind of the, one of the more better moments of clarity for at least power hmm. now what about you know what about the cellular infrastructure what about the internet mm -hmm. what about gps what about all these all these grid-based technologies that we rely on what, what if one of those just went away or maybe two of those went away you know we would be pretty screwed if that happened now that's kind of getting into you know like the whole macro aspect of electronic warfare um, because electronic warfare encompasses all electronics I'm talking about your smart oven all the way to your electric vehicle or your gas vehicle I, I'm like I'm talking about it it's a huge spectrum and that encompasses of course your phone um, your desktop computers, your laptops, your radios, even analog radios, even Baofengs, all of those will fall underneath electronic warfare. Um, On the topic of electronic warfare, um, as, a, as a general talking point, do we have adversaries? Uh, does the U.S. have adversaries that capabilities as far as their ability to conduct electric warfare that is better than ours or, or better than the current defensive or protection plans that we have in place in, in your opinion or your general thought process so it's sort of hard to have an opinion on this because we know so little about electronic warfare hmm. like at least on the like me as a civilian i don't know the the capabilities the full extent of the capabilities of the United States electronic warfare domain. I don't know because it's all top secret probably or secret at least. Um, now in terms of our enemies, I will say that given the Ukrainian conflict, we have a general idea about the capabilities of the Russians. Um, we can sort of assume the same or, or maybe they have better capability that the Chinese have better capability than the Russians. It, I know that the Russians have focused very heavily on electronic warfare, especially with jamming and and radio direction finding. Mm -hmm. um, now, in terms of who has more capability, uh, I am going to say that the United States is definitely the leader. It, it definitely seem they, they seem to be the leader in terms of electronic warfare by a long shot. Mm -hmm. Now. I'm probably like there are some cases where I don't think I'm probably not correct um, 
in, in term, whenever you come to like GPS or jamming or, or something like that, I'm just giving an example. I'm not saying that the United States is worse at jamming or something like that. No, I'm just saying that there's so little we know about our, uh, the U.S. government's technology. It's just, you know, it, it's very hard to compare. We have an idea, though. Uh, there are some very talented people working on trying to figure out, you know, what they can do. But let's just say it's a lot. And mm-hmm. it's it's definitely something most people aren't necessarily uh, I, I don't want to say equipped to know or to to figure out but it's just so above most people's heads that like literally electronic warfare applies to everything even even your cell phone most people can't really grasp you know how that comes to hand like oh yeah they can the conspiracy theories about how oh they can track you uh, they can listen to you and and stuff like that that those types of conspiracies yeah that's given with electronic warfare now it's not that simple right mm-hmm. but that's that's sort of where electronic warfare goes is, is the, that type of stuff it's from from what i understand and the things that i've read in the past and then just things i've heard back when i did work somewhat in that field or with people that worked in that field is that the technology at hand now, the offensive capabilities in electronic warfare of kind of all of the big players outweighs the defensive capabilities of a lot of the big players. It seems like you know our offensive capabilities has grown much faster in that field. What are your thoughts on that? I would agree, um, and that's because the offense is it is actually pretty hard to defend against electronic warfare. Um, and spending the resources on hardening every system for defense is extremely expensive, time-consuming, and it's actually really complicated to do effectively. Um, now, attacking is a little bit of a different story. Generally speaking, when we're talking about electro, uh, electronic warfare attack, or EA, um, we are talking about attacking via radio frequency uh we're talking about jamming we're talking about radio direction finding we're talking about just overall scanning and just signal identification and stuff like that and on the flip side of that we're uh, you know on the more extreme cases we're talking about like full manipulation of of cellular towers um just wi-fi like you could literally if you can imagine it there's probably a system for it in terms of you know oh i want to figure out how many phones are are on this given cellular tower and where are their identities and where are they at you could do that you could probably the the u.s government probably has something that could do that (laughs) very easily uh and i'm and i'm and I have a good, a good, I have a good idea of, of how much they've deployed that over the ca- past couple of years, and it's it's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have heard in the past, just with the five G towers, that the ability to track, um, you know, the electric interference from different devices, and you know, you know, mobile phones that connect to it and whatnot has has far surpassed any of the technology that we had previously. Because to my understanding, at least how it works with like 5G with our phones and whatnot, is that you basically ping into a tower every time you enter a, a new tower's uh, sector of coverage in a sense. Mm-hmm. Is, is that correct? Yeah, so 
that's that's correct but it's also happening like the phone talks to the tower i don't want to say constantly but it's very often uh it's like it's probably every second or or maybe a little more than that maybe five seconds the phone checks in with all the towers and it and does a handshake so it says yeah i can hear you you can hear me cool we're connected right mm-hmm. um there are with 5g this is just the way how it works you have to have more towers in order for the coverage to be as good or better than than previous 4g technologies because mm-hmm. um, with 4g you had the majority of the t- of of the infrastructure on towers now on 5g that's not necessarily the case we're talking about like inner city communications and stuff like that like the antennas are on buildings type of stuff mm-hmm. um and you need more you need more of that equipment and the thing is with with so many of these 5g towers and radios and stuff like that scattered around the city sort of in a nice even pattern um you can have an excruciating amount of of information towards direction finding um towards overall signals intelligence capability and and just listening you could you could hear so much uh you you could cover so much area and you could you you know you could hear all these phones talking uh i don't don't, maybe not hear but you could see that all these phones are talking to these towers in this given area so i know that there's a high probability that this phone is here Mm. now this is just on the direction finding side of things there are other things part of cellular and stuff like that that make it way way easier to do that like you don't have to direction find in order to find somebody's location Uh, when the when the technology itself relies on the carrier knowing where you're at like yeah you're your phone gets a GPS signal, then that gets into the carrier because, you know, for for signal purposes, that's kind of in the standard, um, in the cellular standards. But yeah, that's that's a wormhole right there. But <laughs> we could probably talk about that for hours. Absolutely, yeah. Um, just like so anything electronic warfare. <laughs> we we had just started to hit the scratch surface of it, and then we went down the electronic warfare uh, mm-hmm. rabbit hole. So let's bring it back towards uh, encryption, because we were kind of starting to dive into that. Yes. Um, what what should people know about encryption, and, and how does it how does it um, apply to uh, the civilian basis? So encryption is basically a better way at dealing with only uh, dealing with talking to uh, you're trying to talk to this one person and you don't want anybody else to know what you're saying you use encryption and you there's a there's a code that you exchange so that you can encode and decode your data or in, encrypt and decrypt your data mm-hmm. so that nobody else knows what you're saying right this is very common with with internet communications and stuff like that basically everything's encrypted nowadays mm-hmm. but for radios it's very similar um, and it's just to prevent people from knowing what you're saying. That's what encryption does. And it, it cannot do anything else. It, it technically cannot do anything else besides prevent people from knowing what you're saying. Now, it doesn't prevent people from knowing that you're talking. Okay, this is a very important thing to know. Encryption does not hide your signal. Mm. It does not make it less obvious. It does not do anything in order to... 
you know, kind of obfuscate your traffic it, uh, in terms of, you know, are you talking with your radio or not? Um, in terms of internet communications, yeah, encryption can help quite a bit in terms of uh, preventing somebody from knowing what you're doing. But that's not the case here. It, like, if you're talking on a radio, you somebody can see that, right? I, be- I believe Wyoming Survival did a post about that very recently. In terms of... Uh, if you remember that. About being able to hear digital traffic from... I think he had like an analog... Um, uh, what would we call it? Um, scanner. Mm-hmm. And he was he was transmitting on digital, and it just showed that you could hear him transmitting, but you can't hear what he was saying. Yeah, exactly. So when an analog radio hears a digital radio, they're not. It's the the, the digital radio or the analog radio is not going to be able to understand anything. It's just going to sound like like uh, like a motorboat, um, so to say, or or maybe a uh, just just noise, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about advanced adversaries with very advanced electronic warfare capabilities, they're going to have the technology in order to decode these digital standards, right? And a lot, an analog radio cannot do that, right? An analog-only radio cannot do that. But the government for sure can, and the, the, especially militaries can for sure decode P25 and DMR. I, I can almost assure you that they can do that. <laughs> um, now, that is why we use encryption. And, and it's not just the government and militaries either. There's a lot of civilian programs and, and hardware that can decode basically any digital standard. Um, and that, that includes P25, DMR, and all the, all the, radio, the, the handheld radio uh, standards and, and, and commercial standards and stuff like that. You use encryption on these digital standards to prevent the people that can decode it from knowing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's kind of multiple layers right there. The people You have the people that have analog radios that can hear anything, right? Mm-hmm. You have they, they can hear it, they may not understand it, and then you have people that can decode digital standards, right? Mm-hmm. They can decode digital, but if you throw encryption on top of that, they won't be able to hear your voice, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of like multiple layers of, of preventing somebody from knowing what you're talking about. And just alone, using digital is better at preventing most people from knowing what you're hearing because if you're just using analog, anybody with a thing will be able to hear you, right? Mm-hmm. Baofeng cannot decode, or any analog, for instance, cannot decode something that's digital, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's already a good chunk of the potential receivers. You know, they're not going to be able to hear what you're saying. Is the technology is there technology currently that um, is somewhat already in use that would be able to decode, let's say, a digital radio radio utilizing AES encryption? So that kind of goes down the wormhole of cryptography cracking mm-hmm. and exploitation. Um, in term for AES two, so there's there's multiple encryption algorithms. There are proprietary ones that the radio manufacturer doesn't like to tell us what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There are the open standard ones that are defined in, in some standard. So that those are AES two fifty six, 
um, DES, XL, DES, um, those encryption standards are the more publicly defined ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of cracking them, the advers- an adversary can only realisti- realistically crack everything that's not AES-256. Uh, wait, I said that right? I was uh, say, say that one more time. An adversary can realistically crack everything except for AES-256. Okay. Realistically. Mm. Uh, we're talking about minutes, hours, weeks, right? An adversary will be able to crack weak encryption if they have that amount of time, mm. right? So AES-256 is the gold standard in terms of encryption mm-hmm. for security. Um, it is... By itself, you're not going to really be able to crack AES-256 ever, right? Mm. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't have its flaws. There are issues with AES-256, but it usually requires having physical access to the radio. But mm. if you have physical access, then you could probably just hear it. So, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then for everybody that does know, if if you ever lose an encrypted radio, um, or one of your guy, well, somebody is, um, you know captured or something like that and that radio is no longer in your possession roll over your encryption um, yes <laughs> even if they break the encryption on the radio that they captured you're going to be on an all new um you know key code and, and then they just have to start from scratch yes yeah and that's that's another important very important point um just because you're using the strongest encryption doesn't exclude you from the fact that you need to be changing keys regularly for mul- mm-hmm. for a multitude of reasons one or for for security, of course, um, in terms of like over-the-air cracking, uh, an adversary is not going to be able to crack your most relevant code if you're changing it all the time. Um, now, there are issues with this idea because the adversary has already listened to your digital data going over the radio, and they've stored it, right? You have to store it in order to start cracking the encryption. Now, once they've cracked that encryption, they could just go back to the data that they stored, decrypt it, and know exactly what you said like a week ago, right? So that can happen. Now, encryption is really only good at delaying the the proliferation of, of information, right? I don't want to say it's a 100% surefire way at preventing the enemy from knowing what you're saying or what you're doing, right? Which is why it's even more important to regularly roll over your crypto because even if they get to the point where, you know, they do crack your AES um, encryption and they have, you know, a week's worth of your transmissions recorded or whatever, mm-hmm. they may know what you're saying. But if that if that stuff's from, you know, six weeks ago, it's probably it may not even be relevant anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, and that's that's another point uh, that I've also been discussing with a lot of people. How targeted do you have to be? in order for this to affect you mm-hmm. yeah because this is not common technology that like even your local sheriff's office or or a standard you know infantry unit is going to have this is this is some dedicated resources yeah this is some airborne asset that's you know thirty thousand feet above you doing <laughs> that, that's that's yeah. what that's... Yeah, your your local police department is not trying to track trying not trying to crack your radio encryption yeah, one they, they don't probably... even know how to use their own radios, let alone <laughs> crack your encryption. Yeah, now I will say that it is becoming significantly more common that 
infantry units and smaller um, military units are deploying electronic warfare assets. Now, mm. the thing is, is that do, are they including digital radios like DMR and P25? That's a very good question. I have no idea. But it's safe to assume that eventually that they will have that capability, or maybe they already even have that, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say, let's take a page out of the government's sort of toolbox and, and the way how they assess things. When they talk about sensitive information, especially something that's top secret, they leave absolutely no chance at, at like, they, they go to the last measure to ensure that somebody... That, that somebody not authorized to know that information will know that. Like, they're very paranoid about their security, right? Mm-hmm. That That is a similar idea we could apply to our own radios and the fact that we want to do as much as possible. We want the enemy to work as hard as possible to know what we're saying, mm-hmm. right? Because knowing what somebody is saying is extremely... Like, if, if you could hear somebody real time from the, from the point where they talked or the time that they talked, that is critical information that could that could win a battle, or that could literally like give the enemy where your position's at, or or exactly what you're about to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of like the cracking the enigma uh, sense of what this is. Now, this kind of goes into yeah, they can crack your encryption, but that's not that likely. What they're gonna do if if you're using encrypted radios is you're making them have to direction find you in order for them to do something to you mm-hmm. right so with normal baofangs you can talk all you want and the adversary will be able to decode that i can almost guarantee that the adversary if they're looking if they're scanning they will be able to hear you right now with something that's digital and with with encryption on top of the digital standard, you're you're forcing them to to have to figure out where you're at with direction finding equipment in order for them to have anything to go on, right? And just by doing that, you are making it significantly more difficult in order for them to figure out where where you're at, or what you're doing, or or you know how much of a threat are you, right? So. By by adding that obfuscation, you're you're securing your communications, which is extremely critical. Like all of our communications right now, especially even this call right now, is encrypted, right? Mm-hmm. So why isn't your radio traffic? Right? Sure. It's and uh, how go ahead. how um prevalent is directional finding um, equipment? to your understanding right now as far as like conventional forces go like you know western powers mm-hmm. you know is that is that specifically like an s2 or like at the in, the intel sections capabilities or infantry units um having assets attached to them that implement those types of capabilities you know what what, what is um what level is that being implemented at generally speaking uh, historically we in terms of u.s deployments we've seen um, we've seen assets attached to inf- to some infantry units. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, a lot. It's 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 much more common in terms of special forces. Special forces usually have some sort of electronic asset attached to them, at least in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what capabilities do those possess? That's that's something for a different day. But we're generally speaking in 
up, we're seeing an uptrend in terms of the amount of equipment for electronic warfare purposes being deployed within smaller and smaller units. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the, it's something like at a company level that, that, that is deployed. Um, now, that's not always the case anymore. Uh, sometimes that's higher than that. It just really depends on, on the operation. Now, for some, I've seen this quite a bit, uh, for some like massive social events like football games or stuff like that, uh, let's say there is some sort of military detachment to go to that to provide security, maybe SOCOM or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are for sure, I've seen this for very popular events like the Super Bowl, there are for sure electronic warfare devices deployed at that site. I can almost guarantee that. Uh, now, what to what extent those can do, who knows? Uh, it, is, it is up to speculation for the most part. Yeah. But we're seeing a general up to uptrend in terms of the amount of deployments and how common it is in terms of infantry. So with um, bringing back into the basics of encryption, what is, um, and we could just you know generally focus on AES, um, mm-hmm. what is the encryption itself? Because like you and I were talking separately on the Instagram DMs about um, you know self-sustainable ways to you know basically continuously give yourself encryption. Those those mm-hmm. those devices that we were talking about, the, the names of them escape me at the moment, or what what the system is called. But what is the encryption itself, and how and how does those systems come up with it? Is it completely randomized? Is there a limited amount of encryption codes or key codes? So you know how. If that makes any sense, I'm kind of yes. on at this point. Yeah, no, it, it's <laughs> this is sort of uh, stemming into the world of, of cryptography and stuff like that. So, encryption uses a set of so conventional encryption. We're talking about pre-shared keys. It's mm-hmm. that's a type of that's a sort of class of encryption. And AES falls underneath that. AES two fifty six falls underneath that. Mm-hmm. Pre-shared keys means that each party that's talking needs to have the key already shared with each other in order for them to understand each other. Mm-hmm. So I have to know the the key that you are encrypting your data with in order for me to know that, in order for me to decode what you're saying or decrypt what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's the same way with radios. Most radios are using pre-shared keys. This is excluding Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is a completely different story. But for handheld radios, that are using encryption, it is you have to share the encryption key with with the other radio you're trying to talk to beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are P25 has some ways to automate this, but that is kind of complicated, and, and that is something that I have not really uh, gone into much. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you have to share the key with each radio, and the key. The, the the key is dictates how strong I, I don't want to say it completely dictates but it helps dictate how strong your encryption is going to be in terms of against cracking if you provide each radio with a very very simple and short key the radio the, the an adversary will have a pretty good chance at cracking it right the entropy of a key, the randomness of a key, mm-hmm. is what dictates, usually speaking, usually dictates the strength of the encryption. Now, some standards 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure if AES 256 has this built into it, but but what they do is they add a layer on top of that key that you provide it. And so like maybe they hash it or something like that that mm. that extends the length of that key automatically so that it, it it tries to maximize the entropy as much as possible. Now, that's not foolproof though. Um, a key's randomness is defined by a random input. Computers, generally speaking, cannot compute random numbers, true random numbers. They cannot do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the key is generally, the, the key is generally speaking comprised of some factors from from some part of a computer system. So like, let's say the time, the clock. It takes the clock, takes the computer ID, puts them together, takes a, takes a hash of them or something like that, and that's the key that it generates. Mm-hmm. That's super generic, that's probably not accurate at all, but that's generally speaking how that works. Yeah. Um, so in it, theory, there is, an, uh, there is not a limit to the amount of AES-256 encryptions that these, um, these devices can create when programming your radios yeah so there is technically a limit but it is a it is a number so excruciatingly high nobody will ever reach the limit ever in the world um now uh we could talk about the devices that sort of generate these keys um so ideally this is how the military does it they have a device called the SKL or the simple keyloader. Uh, yes. And what this does is it stores, I don't know if it can generate the keys, but it, it stores encryption keys securely. And those encryption keys come from upper echelon command and, and stuff like that. And yeah. the keys are disseminated. It's my understanding from when I used SKLs, um, we, the SKLs did not generate keys. We took the SKLs to a higher echelon with better mm-hmm. capabilities and they they program the SKLs with the encryption, uh, with, with the keys. We just, the SKL was just the, a way for us to carry, um, you know, the, the key codes with us while in the field environment. Mm-hmm. And even the SKL itself was protected with a um, code that you had to know if you were a person of that unit. So let's say a radio um, dropped its crypto for whatever reason or we, we pre-plant to be gone into the field for three or four weeks and the crypto that we're going to roll over to on day six is in that SKL. Mm. Um, so we would put a code into the SKL, it would unlock the device, and then we would plug all of our radios into it and then roll over the crypto. And then six days later or seven days later, we'd do the same thing again. Um, but because that was a common thing we normally faced was radios for some reason would just drop their frequency um, or just something would happen to the radio and you would just need to start from scratch you know, reprogram the frequency hopping or whatever, re-upload the keys, and then you know, start start over. Yeah, and that's generally speaking, somebody unplugged the battery or, or you know, w- something weird happened, right? Yeah, so an infantry marine got a hold of it. <laughs> so that's that's the military side of things, and the at least the more advanced and more secure side of the civilian things in terms of radio technology, it's going to be focused on. P25 digital radios. Now, a lot of the same aspects apply. You need to have a key loader, is a separate device that that stores or perhaps generates the keys on board, mm-hmm. and that loads it into 
the radio, right? Um, it's, of course, not as secure. It's, there are some things that are missing. There are some features that are missing. Um, and the fact, the thing is that commercial keyloaders for, uh, at least for, for civilians, is are very uncommon. They are very rare and they're very expensive to find. Mm. Um, now, there are some things changing with that. There are uh, some keyloader projects out there that are open source, so you can make your own keyloader for pretty cheap, actually. Is, but is it, that like the the thing that you sent me with that list of parts? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, and it, but that requires a computer. Yeah. And the the SKL has some very very cool features about it because it doesn't require an external computer. It doesn't need to be connected to the internet. It I actually don't believe it has any radios at all, and that's for a very good security purpose because it can't be tampered with remotely yeah. um, if it doesn't have the technology to be even tampered with. So uh, that's that's sort of the flaws with the current civilian key loading and, and security, encryption security kind of sector is is you need to have a computer that generates these keys in order for them, like a desktop computer, in order to load them into a machine. Now, there are ways to harden this. You could have a laptop with absolutely no radios in it that never touches any other computer. And all it does is it programs your radios and loads encryption onto the radios. Um, that's not a bad solution at all. But we can do better. Uh, and this is kind of where um, comms and logistics is kind of going in terms of like we work on a lot of products um we have yet to release one but we are are engineering um a, a good amount of projects that we would like to turn into products eventually and one of those is a key loader that is you know it doesn't rely on any computers it is mm. completely standalone um and it has its own internal batteries and it generates stores authenticates users and uploads encryption keys to radios um, that's so, so that's one thing we're working on um, and we're trying to achieve the same amount of goal or we're trying to we're trying to achieve the same amount of capability that the US military has in terms of their radio infrastructure in terms of their security um, and, and, and stuff like that so so is there more than one of you at the comms and logistics page yes there's there's somebody else that's helping me with this quite a bit um, are you but, just the main like social? Are you the only one with the social media though? Yes, yeah, I'm usually the only one that that talks oh, okay. to people on on social. I didn't know media, if I've so. been talking to multiple people this entire time. <laughs> no, no, you've been talking to one dude. Um, okay, but yeah, no, we're working on some engineering stuff uh, quite a bit, and that's why we're usually busy, uh, and we can't really like. It's been a downtrend in terms of the amount of posts we're making, and that's because one, we're really busy, and two we really want to spend a lot of time on these posts. Like we're talking about electronic, electronic warfare and I could hardly give a really good explanation of it mm. in this podcast. Right. So yeah, the post really needs to be really well baked in order for that to go out. But yeah, let's, sure. let's stay on, you know, the topic of security and encryption and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah, you, you generally speaking, if you want to ensure that the enemy has the hardest time knowing what you're saying, you have to one, generate the key securely so not on a Windows computer that is connected to the internet. Certainly not. And then certainly not a Windows computer, or ideally not with a Windows computer that has radios in it. So like Wi-Fi, uh, cellular, stuff like that. Mm. So you need to generate the key securely. 
you need to load the keys onto the radios and you need to cycle those keys. You need to roll over those keys regularly. I'd say three weeks at a minimum. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, more, the more often the better, but then of course you run into some issues with, uh, you know, oh, uh, this party, you, like let's say you don't have contact with this person, but you need to load their encryption keys um, now so that your guys, your buddies can talk to them uh, later on, uh, you know, stuff like that. You, it, the more often you roll over the keys, the more of a hassle it's going to be, but mm-hmm. you need to find the happy balance. If as a, on that aspect for that, if you're a, you know, civilian based group, the Minuteman guys, the prepper groups, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if you're a group that is established like a, a monthly admin meeting, that's something we do locally with my guys is we have a monthly uh, admin meeting that is separate from our like normal operational training in a sense that, that, that is an example of a good time where it's like, Hey, everybody bring their radios to the admin meeting every month. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to roll over everybody's comms. Yeah, uh, that's a very good idea. Um, now, there's not every, not all your communications need to be secured to this level, though, mm-hmm. because maintaining this type of security is is quite excruciating, and the military spends so much, so many resources on trying to do the same thing that that if we try to do everything that they were doing, we would probably just not be able to do anything at all because it was just too much, too much to handle, right? Mm-hmm. So. In addition to having the, the the frequencies that have the encryption keys that are, are rolled over like weekly or monthly, um, you need to have some channels that have the same encryption keys all the time. And that's for interoperability purposes. Um, so the people that haven't gone to that admin meeting or maybe they, you know, maybe they were gone or... or or maybe for some reason you the the keys didn't load correctly in the radio or something like that. Usually you should, you check that beforehand, but mm-hmm. before you before they left the meeting. But you know that type of stuff. You know you got to consider that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, security is a major part of uh, your communications. Uh, and if you don't secure that, if you don't secure that, you can basically almost guarantee that the mission is going to be affected in some way because of a technological failure. Mm-hmm. Um, especially against a very advanced adversary. And we're going to see this more often is, is this techno- th- these electronic warfare capabilities start getting put down into smaller and smaller units. And then we're going to see them more often uh, as a result. And even law enforcement nowadays, like state law enforcement, they're getting scary. They... they they're starting to get some pretty advanced technologies in terms of um, drones with thermal cameras, radio direction finding equipment, cellular scanning and and um, identification and, and location tracking and stuff like that. They're starting to get pretty advanced. Uh, and that's something that we need to kind of look out for and uh, acknowledge. For sure. Um, back to the point where you're talking about um, having a PC that is um, safe and secure for um, you know creating and uploading your key codes. Um, what what is something you suggest? Are you are you you know a tough book guy? Do you stand by the tough books as far as you know having that capability? Funny enough, you mentioned that because I got I got a um, I got another one a couple of days ago, and I've been I've been working on that quite a bit. Uh, and the laptop is meant for it's meant for more than just generating encryption keys. It's meant for anything that shouldn't 
this shouldn't be known to quite advanced adversaries. Like, mm-hmm. like what frequencies I'm using, uh, like the programming of the radios. I have to program the radio with a computer, mm-hmm. so I need to trust that computer uh, to to be, you know, pretty secure in terms of doing that. And of course, it could also generate and store the encryption keys on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a tough book that is modified to not have any wireless capabilities at all. Um, basically, all of the antennas are unplugged in it, and anything, any radio that I could remove was removed, <laughs> basically. And so, so there pretty much are no tough books that come not able to hook up to the Wi-Fi or anything like that anymore? Um, generally, like, like you can buy them, and they will work like perfect laptop, like normal laptops. Yeah. Um, it's just it sort of becomes a DIY project in order to secure it, um, which is also an issue because a lot of people, uh, you know, they uh, people have to go through the time and the research in tor- to, to actually make that proper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, let's say they didn't remove uh, the, the cellular radio, but they removed the Wi-Fi radio. Well, then you solve an issue. Or maybe they're using... Window, uh, an inferior version of Windows, like the, the the public versions of Windows or something like that, right? Um, there's some issues with that, and maybe maybe they're plugging in flash drives from different computers that are connected to the internet. Uh, you know, some some security issues with that. So that's why we're kind of making the keyloader is to eliminate a lot of those problems. So um, is there, re- I guess, and my question is, is there really any way for the general civilian that does not have a direct background um, in comms is there really any way for to be 100 percent secure yes and no um the biggest part to keeping your communication secure is understanding the threats that you're facing mm-hmm. um most people right now will not encounter a an airborne asset electronic warfare asset above them. That is just not something that happens very common in the United States. It has happened before recently, but it's not usually, it's not, it's something most, most smart people will, will be smart enough to avoid generally speaking. Cause you know, they're not going to go to a protest or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now inter- it's all about making the enemy work harder mm-hmm. to figure out what you're doing for what you're saying. It doesn't mean you have to go to the last mile in order to secure your tra- your your radios, right? Mm-hmm. Um, DMAR encryption that's stored on a laptop that that doesn't or on a desktop computer, like like let's say you programmed your your DMR radios, you have to load the encryption keys through the software. That, that's actually a big difference between DMR and P25 is is you load the encryption keys through the software, not through a key loader. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to rely more on that computer to be safe, right? Mm. Um, but the thing is, you also have to think about, well, this computer has to be compromised by the same adversary that's trying to decode my radio traffic. And generally speaking, here in the United States, that's only that's basically one entity that, that can do that. Um, I will not name them, but, you know, we all know that. It's, yeah. um, so they have to do that in order to figure out what you're saying so it, it just comes to the point like what is worth it what is really worth it and um so let's say it, i sorry i didn't mean to cut you off oh no you're good 
Um, so let's say I download um, my programming software on my laptop and I put it onto a flash drive, which I then plug into my Toughbook, which has never been connected to Wi-Fi and never been connected to Bluetooth or anything like that. Mm -hmm. is, is that a, not fully, but a simple and secure way to basically get files onto my Toughbook without connecting it to the server? So it is. It is a, generally speaking, pretty effective way. Um, there are some flaws with it, but they generally speaking don't have pretty bad consequences. So like let's say, hey, this this computer that's touching the internet, we're assuming it's compromised, mm -hmm. and that every single USB device we plug into it, that computer loads some sort of malware into that that flash drive, right? Mm -hmm. And then you plug that flash drive into your tough book. Then the malware executes on that tough book. Um, oh, what happens, right? Well, if it doesn't kill the machine, it, it generally speaking is fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's there's it's not connected to the internet and it will never connect to any other system ever, uh, except for systems that kind of like like let's say I connect. So the way I do it is I have security tiers, sort of like secret and top secret in the military, mm -hmm. in the government, and I can only connect computers that are in the same class together. Like let's say they're two secret computers. I, those are the only two computers I, that, that they can touch directly in order for them to, you know, work together or something like that. Mm. Um, I don't think that, you know, you have to be too worried about a flash drive being intro introduced to the system. Mm. Now, if you're the military, the government, that's a different story. But for us, for civilians, for for people that are, you know, you have you have to be pretty known to somebody in order for you to be targeted like that to, yeah. in the first so, place. Uh, go ahead. So what is the best, if I never connect my tough book to a Bluetooth or a Wi-Fi device, what is the best way to get things like uh, software or potential files needed from point A to point B um, with security in mind? So it, like you said, with a flash drive, it's, it's good enough. Um, but the thing, what you want to do is you want to format you want to format the flash drive before you plug it back into the machine that's connected to the internet. And that is just, uh, formatting is, um, so like let's say you get a brand new camera mm -hmm. and you plug in the SD card into it and it says, oh, uh, the, the, the device is not formatted. Uh, and the formatting is basically the, the file system, how the files are stored into it. And, and uh, formatting is basically wiping the entire drive and redoing the file system on it so that it could interact with computers. Uh, and you could do that in Windows. You just right-click the drive, click Properties, and then Format. And then it formats it, which is nice. Um, and that basically ensures that everything on that drive is wiped. It's not a perfect way, but it's pretty good, uh, I, I'd say. Very well. Yeah, it's just <laughs> as we continue to dive into this, I mean, even – even I'm like, man, you're, there's just nothing is secure. <laughs> That's true. Like, if you if you know, the more you know, the less things you think are secure, and that that's something that's been haunting me too. Because I'm like, ah, should this machine really know about this? Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> I mean, like that. in reality, as you know, we move forward and whatnot. Are are we moving towards a day and age where? nothing is secure just for the for the general person just nothing is secure really no matter what you do yeah so i think i think you're we're getting to that point mm -hmm. are we there yet uh, that's 
that's something I really can't answer. I mean, it's it's kind of a really big question, but I think the one thing, the best thing that we could do is to not define everything underneath security. It's more the privacy privacy versus security aspect of things. Because like mm-hmm. somebody knowing what you're doing is violating privacy, but is it done securely? If if the question is yes, then then yeah, it's secure, but it's not private. Right, so like using a Google Pixel with the stock um, operating system on it, yeah, that's secure, but it's it's horribly not private. Like even iPhones, very secure, not private. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you talk about your security, that's a different story. But yeah, I think we're definitely getting to the point where things are becoming a lot less secure in terms of our purposes, a lot less private in the same way. Um, it's sort of like the, um, what you call it, the 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 thing everybody's been dreading about the Skynet and and stuff like that. I think. Oh yeah. It, it it's not necessarily going to take that form, but it's sort of getting there, and it may already be there, but it's definitely getting worse as time goes on. Yeah. Um, so we've we've covered a really wide range of topics. Let's. <laughs> uh, as we start to wrap this up, where what is what is a good starting point past Baofengs? What is a good starting point that you would suggest to people that are trying to formulate um, more complicated or more sophisticated uh, comps plans? Just as far as handheld radios goes, and then maybe some supporting uh, equipment that goes with it. What what is your best advice? Yeah, so generally speaking, there's two digital standards you want to pick: DMR or P25. They both have their benefits and their downsides. DM- DMR is more friendly towards new people mm-hmm. um, to the to the uh, to the technology. P25 is a little more complicated, um, a little bit more robust. Um, it requires a keyloader, and the programming software is usually harder to get. Though I've been working on trying to get around that. Um, P25 is really nice because. Any P25 radio, so as long as it talks on the same frequencies, it'll work. Uh, the encryption should work, uh, so as long as it's the same algorithm. Uh, DMR, you don't have that. You, you mix vendors, some things don't work. Encryption may not work. Text messages may not work, stuff like that. But mm-hmm. on P25, that that is different. Um, it, they all are able to interoperate with each other. And for that reason, I like to push, I don't want to say push people, but I like to guide people towards P25. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a uh, the the radios are more sturdier. The the, the, the battery life is sometimes better. Um, uh, some some of the the programming once you learn how to program one P twenty five radio, generally speaking, they're all going to follow the same toward t- sort of pattern in terms of how you program them. Um, and for everyone that's listening, P twenty five is not a single radio. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. It's more of a software in a sense. Correct. Yeah, it's the it's the digital standard that the radios use to talk to each other. So like whenever I t- I'm talking about P25 radios or DMR radios, there's not a brand DMR. There's not a brand P25. It's mm-hmm. it's Motorola making a P25 capable radio. It's Kenwood making a P25 or DMR radio. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily talking about you know the standard in in, in a way. I'm talking about the vendor like. Actually, I am talking about the standard, but I'm not talk- talking about the vendor in that but uh, sense. But uh, Motorola, Kenwood, Tate, uh, that's T-A-I-T, um, they, those 
those are the three big uh, I don't know about Tate in the United States but generally speaking those are the three radio vendors that that sell most of those radios and then you have your Chinese companies um, like Hytera making DMR radios uh, but generally speaking I think P25 is a is a pretty nice safe option um, it's it's more complex than DMR I'd say but in the end it's worth it um, in terms of some of the security benefits and stuff like that and uh, they like those those radios like like to play nicely with each other and there's a huge aftermarket on eBay for p25 radios um, what is do you have any suggestions for like secondary or support equipment or just things people should have in general outside of their base handheld radio yeah so um, I guess I could talk about the actual the model names of the handheld radios because I know a lot of people are probably like, well, he talked about them. Why well, didn't give, he give us uh, an exact answer, right? Yeah. Um, I think the EF Johnson, so this is underneath Kenwood, uh, the EF Johnson 5100 ES radio is a pretty nice option. It, you could get them for like $100 uh, with a battery on eBay or 200 bucks on eBay. Um, and they do AES-256, they come with a battery, a charger, um, and they work with all the same accessories that the Motorola XTS-5000 and 2500 radios come with, mm-hmm. though those radios are more expensive. Um, now, they work all, with all the same accessories, they're cheaper, they do all the encryption algorithms that you want. Um, there is The software is a little easier to learn. Um, but yeah, that's they're basically, I'd say, a pretty safe option. There's some guys on Instagram like Anarcho Bacon that can help you program them, or he, he could even sell you radios that are already pre-programmed, key, pre pre pre-key loaded, so you don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah, um, I had I, I had actually messaged him after our conversation. Um, I think he said he had uh, just as a general price ballpoint for everybody that may be listening. He had XTS five thousand uh, radio packages, and I'm pulling up the messages right now because I don't want to. Um, misspeak. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. Where is it? Sorry, guys. Yep. So he has um, the, fi- the XTS 5000 in VHF, which is a package. It's $600. And it comes with the radio um, pre programmed with P25 and analog capability uh, and the ability to program AES 256 encryption. And it comes with. Uh, one battery, the antenna, a charging station, and then a hand mic, the traditional trucker's mic. And then he also does an initial programming of eight AES uh, encryption keys for you to use until you build your own software. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a starting point. That's if you don't really want to mess with the software yourself. Now, if you do want to do it yourself, it's a good amount. It's, it's, it's quite a bit cheaper. Uh, I'd say it's like, you can probably get a XTS 5000 for you know 350 bucks on eBay, and then with the programming cable, that's that puts you at like 410 bucks. And with the key loader, that's that's around 100 dollars. And if you get the software for it, um, you're you got a radio for you know um, for around 500 dollars. But but you have that infrastructure, you have the programming cable and the key loader and software to do more radio. So you, that's 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 overhead that you don't have to buy in every radio now. Um, and of course, I'm sure you could talk with him and the, the more radios you buy, there's some other people like BSH comms and stuff like that. Shop around, look at eBay, weigh if you want to do this yourself, weigh if you want to 
let somebody else take care of it and um you know your radios work out of the box um that, that's something that you have to decide and for me of course i'm going to go the route of making my own radio uh system work uh, but that's because you know i uh, i have the background that i have but most people don't have that and i i definitely see why they want to buy it from somebody that that already hasn't figured out um but a huge part of this is knowing how these radios work and if you buy them yourself from ebay you have to figure out how they work in order for them in order for you to make them work right so uh that's one thing i like people to do is figure figure it out on their own so that they're more self-sufficient and if you buy like if i buy a, an xts 5000 off of ebay let's say i find a you know a radio a charger and an antenna and a battery whatever for 250 bucks are those going to come were those standardly come p25 already or am i going to have to basically reprogram those or rehardwire those to be p25 so it's funny that you mentioned the motorola xcs 5000 or 2500 radios um so one thing to be careful about on ebay is that there's a lot of radios on ebay that come in the 700 800 megahertz uh frequency band and there's a reason why i haven't talked a whole lot about that during this podcast because it doesn't really apply to civilians a whole lot and the reason why is because those frequencies are usually only reserved for law enforcement or, or public safety in general and in, in government mm. uh and if you use those frequencies and if you interfere with with public safety traffic they will come get you they will that is a very very good way to get a knock on the door and um yeah, don't do that. Don't buy one of those radios if you don't know what you're doing. Don't buy it. Just because you found a really good deal doesn't mean you should buy it on eBay. Uh, you need to do your research. You need to see if the radio has the, the features you want. So like like uh, like you said, does does the XCS5000 come with P25 enabled? And sometimes no. Uh, but most of the times, yeah, it'll probably have P25 enabled. Um, and that's, that's something you have to figure out how to do with with some special software that most people are not supposed to have uh, uh, so that's that's another level of complexity and, and that kind of goes away if you buy it from somebody that's already programming it for you is they can sort of handle that and of course if you get one of those radios and you're stuck with a radio that that is sort of a potato um, you know ask one of us ask one of us on Instagram and, and you know we could help you get in the right direction so um, it's it's something that yeah, if you find a really good deal, you just need to verify it, uh, and you need to see if it has. What you, it, it, you need to see if it does what you want it to do. Are you able to disclose where guys could find the software to basically rehardware their their radios to P twenty five? Yeah, so um, I would say ask me, and if you don't want to ask me, there are two websites that, generally speaking, have. A, have the software or information on how to get the software. Mm. So the the first one is called Austech A U S Tech dot uh info dot info. Let me double check. Yeah, dot info. And it's an Australian technology forum mm. and they focus a lot on radios and stuff like that. And there's a lot of guys in there that's that's sharing the software and and stuff like that. But uh, one thing I uh yeah uh, I'm gonna and then uh, there's communications.support if you just type that in your browser it pulls up the website but one thing I will say about these sites is that just don't don't make an account and just ask for software they don't really like that so look around search use the search function 
Now, on, on communication support, you will not find software unless you donate to the website, um, which is interesting. But on Austech, they usually have the links on there for free. That is if you don't want to ask me. If you ask me, uh, I have some easier ways on how to do that, on how to get the software. But um, yeah, it's just generally speaking, in order for you to, to get the software, you kind of have to ask around and, and figure out you know, the sources. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, much, how much more um, equipment is somebody looking at um, for reprogramming, reprogramming the radios to um, basically be outfitted with P25? Or is it as simple as having the software and then you, know, you have a programming cable? It's that simple. Yeah, you okay. see the software. Um, most of the features... So like the, the the way that Motorola and and Kenwood have have sort of paywalled their radios is with features, mm-hmm. and you have to pay for every single feature. Um, now for the older radios like the EF Johnson 5100s and 5300s and the Motorola XTS 5000s and 2500s, um, it's all through software. You don't have to pay for that stuff anymore, and I don't want anybody to pay for those features anymore because they're older radios. Uh, you shouldn't have to pay for them, um, and it's just having the special software from them that allows you to activate those features for free. Uh, it's it's generally speaking that's that's how straightforward it is. Um, the EF Johnson is easier to do than easier to get the features on than the XCS five thousands and and the other Motorola's. I'd say though. Uh, so that's why I also recommend them as to be the safer option is because they're easier to work on the the EF Johnson radios. Mm, let me see. I'm gonna look this up while we talk about this because I haven't looked at the EF Johnsons. Yeah, they're, they're. I will say compared. I'm gonna compare the 5100s to the 5000s. They're not as durable. That that's not to say that they're not durable. They're they're just not as durable. Um, they're usually uh, uh, a little lighter. They're the features in them are not as well baked into the radio than, than the Motorola's. That's not to say that they don't work. They work well. Uh, they probably work good enough for most people. It's just those are the little tiny things you'll notice by having the radio. Also, the battery life on the the EF Johnson 5100s is not as good. Uh, I'd say by like 10 to 20%, not as good compared to the um, uh, XCS 5000. And that's talking about, like for me... With this XTS 5000 I have on my desk right here, I could get like two 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 days of, of battery life using the radio, which is pretty pretty good. <laughs> Let's see here. Yeah, um, I think that really we're pretty much wrapping that up. I, I would definitely suggest to anybody, specifically those of you that are like you know the civilian groups on the more tactical side and whatnot definitely look at ways to be not only self-sustainable but self-supporting in a sense um with you know comms and it really just comes with anything you were talking about anything logistics related your supply system your comms system anything like that you know creating positions within your groups for people to focus on those types of things kind of like billets um and, and and being able to track this kind of stuff and learn about this kind of stuff and then teach everybody else can can really benefit the overall capabilities of your group mm-hmm. um, and then obviously having the hardware and the infrastructure you know yourself to you know basically reprogram radios and then create encryptions is that that's a that is a very high capability for for just anybody to have 
Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. Being more self-sustainable is is going to be a very, very key factor in terms of your success when things start to get bad um, or start to get more bad. Um, and I know I've been kind of rambling about some things about security and, and stuff like that during this podcast, but it, it is uh, it's quite the wormhole if you start to go into it and and really start to get down into the nitty gritty. So, but d- don't let that don't let that uh, make you afraid about going into it. It is definitely worthwhile to have good communications, um, to have good security with your radio systems and, and to, uh, have good quality gear. Most importantly. Mm. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to be a person that has, you know, a $600 pair of, uh, you know, contacts on your, you know, $800 helmet setup, you might as well invest into your comms instead of plugging your $600 headset into a $30 radio. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. we've all been guilty of by all means. I mean, my, I'm still running a Baofeng right now. It wasn't until recently where I was like, you know what? I, we need to improve our comms plan. Um, but you know, you self-realize, and then you move on, and then you continue to uh, basically improve. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 prefer Im- slow improvement rather than just complete stagnation. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it definitely seems like I'm gonna just I'm kind of scrolling eBay as we talk here um, for the, the XTSs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like the XTS 2500s are around the $250 range. You know, the equipment that comes with it may vary um, as far as like hand mics and battery chargers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it seems like a lot of them like will specifically say in the title like, uh, you know, P25 already or whatever, something like that. And then the XDS 5000s look to be anywhere from about four to $500, again, depending on what kind of gear that may come with it. Yeah, and, and about the about the radios missing the features that you want. The majority of them nowadays are going to come with the features you want because, uh, you know, and that's kind of what these sellers are kind of gearing towards is people like us. Uh, they, mm-hmm. They're starting to realize that we're starting to become a market in terms of, of secure communications and stuff like that. So they're kind of having those features. The features that people usually want are the, are the features that they're selling radios with. Now, if you're going to buy from an auction like let's say a government selling something, then yeah, you're probably going to have to figure out how to reprogram some of the features back into the radio. Um, but yeah, that's a very extreme case. Like our great here, it says, I have a Motorola XTS 2500 Gen 2 in VHF that's already programmed for P25 that comes with a charging station, a hand mic, a, ba- and, uh, a battery, and an antenna for $400. Yeah, that's for for twenty five hundred. You said. Yeah, for the twenty five hundred. Yeah, that's that's not a bad price. It's a little on the higher end, but you know, mm-hmm. it comes with all the stuff you want, right? So, Which is stuff you're you're gonna have to buy anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, now there's there's a thing to note if you just want to buy the radios by themselves without any batteries or accessories. That's one way to go about it too. You buy a lot of those radios, you get a really good bulk price on the, uh, you get an offer on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way to do it. And then you buy the batteries, the antennas, the chargers from individual sellers so you could have better control over the quality of those. Yeah. Does mm-hmm. Motorola, because uh, I know the XT, the 2500s and the 5000s are discontinued at this point, but they're still flooded in the market. Um, do they still make or do they commonly sell um, accessories for that kind of stuff, antennas, batteries that are compatible with that stuff? Yes. So... Motorola does not make 
stuff for these radios anymore. Um, but there are there there are lots of them on the on the market, right? Mm. And there are lots of accessories that are still being made for them um, and that are compatible with them. The limitation I would say to that are the the batteries and the chargers. Um, those those are probably the two that are sort of drying up in terms of the OEM stuff, the mm. the actual Motorola parts. Um, the batteries, there are some third third party battery makers that are making batteries for the 5000 and and the 2500 that are pretty good and i think uh i think i'll have a post on that um I th- yeah i think i'm going to make a post on on getting aftermarket batteries so that'll be a nice topic but generally speaking antennas uh, are are going to work on most motorola p25 radios um so yeah if if you find a motorola uh, yeah, if, it's all just about finding the right antenna for the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you yeah. have Do you have any suggestions for people that are looking for um, radios that are in a relatively reasonable price range that are still continued that are still in use? So the I can't necessarily speak to any one radio because the issue is with with current in service radios is that they're hardly available on the market. Mm-hmm. On the on the used market, the the reason why that all these radios are on the used market that we can buy right now is because they're discontinued. That yeah. it's because the manufacturer does not support them, um, so the department has to upgrade in order for them to continue receiving support and and parts. Most mm-hmm. importantly, so um, def- go ahead. I was gonna say it definitely seems like, in a sense, even the industry itself kind of gatekeeps the technology two comms oh most certainly and that's not necessarily for oh they don't want you to have that capability it's more of like a money thing mm-hmm. um i think <laughs> so yeah I, it's just there's a lot to think about there's a lot to learn um i'm constantly humbled myself because i run into uh, things i you know that that i have no idea i i've never known about before and I've just figured out, oh, that's a thing, or, or mm-hmm. I have to be cautious about this or that. But it, don't let that discourage you. If you're not technically minded, don't instantly set this aside. This is this is something that a lot of people need to know about if if you want to have any sense of of some security in the future in terms of communications and security and uh, and stuff like that. Like radio, like off grid radios are awesome because they're off grid. Like they don't require anything to work. And they're way harder to surveil, in my opinion. So, yeah, it's very it's a very unique topic, and I wish more people would get into it for sure. In terms well, of, go ahead. Well, I was to say, just hopefully with this, we, you know, we've brought um, some attention to people, and and it will continue to spread like wildfire as it as it should. Yes. Um, yeah. This was I, this was good. I mean, I've learned a lot even even through this, and we've been talking whatever for you know a little while now and just but I, i've continued to learn so thank you for coming on this was uh this was really good of course uh, we are just shy of the two hour mark um, <laughs> do you have any closing remarks or uh you know last last bit advice for anybody that's looking to get um further into the comm field yes um if you need somebody to help you answer your questions or 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 get on the right track feel free to send me a message on instagram i'm i'm definitely open to dms it's not to say i i will 
I can't ensure that I will be able to respond to you, you know, immediately, but you know, a couple days I, I could probably get you, get back to you or, and stuff like that. Um, in terms of learning this technology, just keep an open mind. You need to be uh, flexible in terms of in terms of learning how these things work. If you're new to, to electronics, be patient. Be uh, don't just give up because it doesn't didn't work the time you tried it, or you couldn't find anything on on Google. Just ask around. Be patient. Learn. Uh, ask questions to people um, that that know what they're doing and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, just it, it's. It's something that everybody should know, but but we've been so accustomed to these um, these glass bricks in our pockets called phones, you know, that, that do everything for us. So it's 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 a bit of a learning curve, and um, it, I definitely appreciate helping people, you know, getting you know following suit in terms of preparing and and you know doing this stuff. So yeah, awesome. Uh, would you like to give uh, any shout outs? Yes, I definitely would. So I will say Anarcho Bacon. Uh, he's on Instagram. Terminal Ornament. And uh, I, I, I'd say BSH Comms were very, very supportive in terms of me learning on how to do this. Um, and if it wasn't for them, I probably would not be in the same spot as I was today in terms of my knowledge about these radios and how these radio systems work. Um, and it was actually Anarcho Bacon that led me on the P25. I was actually a huge DMR digital radio guy before I, I met these guys. And they were like, dude, you got to try P25. P25 is, is, does this better. Um, and, I, and for that, I thank them. I, I, I like that bit of clarity. So, yeah, I, uh, those are three of the guys. But there's also um, Great Plains Creations, Mojave Repeater. Um, yeah, he's got a really good page. Not a lot on YouTube yet, but he's got some really good quality videos up on YouTube. Oh yeah, and and uh, what's his name? Uh, Rangeland Communications. Those guys. Those guys are are selling some radios. Uh, uh, not necessarily Great Plains, but they all have experience with radios, and you could ask them questions too. I'm sure they'd help you. Um, those guys have also been quite supportive about uh, what I'm doing and, and and what we're doing here at Comms and Logistics. So awesome. Um, as always, for, for me, you know, Max, always, Max over at the Undesirable Individuals Podcast and Dave at the Polar Connection, you guys have always been huge supporters of the podcast. So I very, very, very much appreciate that. Another shout, a new shout out for me is uh, Wandering Hoosier. If you, if you, you probably already follow Wandering Hoosier um, on social media, if you follow my page, but Wandering Hoosier is a, a big supporter of growing, of, uh, you know, growing pages and, and smaller companies and whatnot. He puts out a lot of really good information. So shout out to you, buddy. Um, hopefully one day I can get you on here. But, uh, you know, CNL, I, I very much appreciate this, man. This was this was a really good episode. Oh, I, I thank you for having me. Um, and if if you want me back any time, I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll be happy to come on. So Absolutely. Um, we'll definitely have to uh, uh, get some more collaboration in the future to, you know, bring, you know, comms awareness to – um, everybody that we hopefully reach one day over here at Everyday Assistance Tactical. Of course. Yeah, I'm glad to be on here. Awesome. Well, I, I, I very much thank you for coming on. Um, we look forward to what we have to do more in the future. Thank you. All right, guys, that is it for episode six, the what, why, and when of comms. As always, guys, train hard, train often.
Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder yeah. Call me what you wanna but you can't call me no coward yeah. Strength in numbers, we the people still the ones with power Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours Tell me turn it down and